But with today being October 31st, I thought it'd be appropriate. I wanted to take advantage of the day and talk to you about what is potentially the scariest subject you can talk about in church. Now, let me tell you, everybody's like, what is it going to be? It's, uh, it's not hell. It's not hell. It's not the scariest subject. It's not the devil. The scariest subject is not the devil. It's not even the book of Revelation. That is not the scariest subject. The scariest subject you can talk about in a church setting is money. I want to talk to you about money today. It's that little green monster that nobody wants to mention. I can tell even as I said that, everybody's butt cheeks are getting tighter <laughs> just by the mention of money. It's a good thing we have comfortable chairs. Makes it easier. But um, understand, when, when I'm talking about money as a little green monster, I'm not trying to suggest to you that money is evil. In fact, that's one of the opinions people have about church. I mean, there's really two primary opinions that people have when it comes to the church and money. One is people have the opinion that the church thinks money is evil. And then the other opinion people have is that all the church wants is your money. And so it's funny when you think about those two things, because I have never been in a church that said money is evil, so give it all to us. Like on that spectrum, they don't coincide. But the reason it's scary is because most of us don't trust the church to talk about money. So I want to use today to talk to that monster in the room. And just like most of the monsters in our lives, it's our inaccurate assumptions, the, the things that we don't know that are scarier than the reality of it. And what I'd like to submit to you today is that despite what people think, the church is actually one of the best places you can learn about this subject. Because what I want to talk to you about today is really not as much about money as it is about your mindset. And this is something that the church is really good at. In fact, one of the core parts of Christianity is to help you understand how what you believe on the inside should change how you behave on the outside. So this is what we're going to take a look at today. And I, I, I want to put you at ease because this sermon is not about giving. It's not a giving sermon. This sermon is not about generosity. We're not doing a special offering at the end of this message. You can relax your butt cheeks, okay? It's going to be okay. But what I want to do is give you some practical help on how you can handle your money better. And here's why. Because most of us could use some help handling our money better. We, we could. The latest reports indicate that two out of three people are living paycheck to paycheck since COVID. Most economists believe that despite the stimulus checks in 2020 or 2021 or anything that our government's doing currently, the financial security of people has continued to decline since the onset of the pandemic. And when you couple that with the fact that U.S. consumer debt is at an all-time high, and the fact that the BBC put out this report three days ago saying that once you take into consideration the rising prices, rising taxes, once you take those things into account, they project the average household incomes will actually fall next year it's clear that this is a subject that affects many of us and is on our minds. Now, that's the bad news, okay? The good news is, is that regardless of where you're at today, whether you would consider money a minor stress or a major stress, regardless of where you're at, all of us can get better. All of us can get better. And 
Despite what you might think, God's word is loaded with wisdom on how to handle your personal finances. I read this in my study this week that there are actually 2,300 scriptures or over, give or take, I don't know. I didn't personally count them. I read it. But 2,300 scriptures that deal in all of the Bible that deal with money and possessions. That is five times as much as prayer and faith. And what are you supposed to take away with that? That how we handle our money and how we handle our possessions is a profoundly spiritual subject. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And to do this, I want to begin with a verse of scripture found in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. So those of you who brought your Bible, you can turn there. Make sure I'm not making this up. If you didn't bring your Bible, put the words on the screen so we can all see this together. But in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, God is speaking to his people. He's speaking through the prophet Hosea, and this is what he says to them. He says, my people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge. And when he says that, the, the state of things would have been much like it is today. People were in ruin. That's what destroyed means. They were in ruin. They were undone. And when it says that word knowledge, it's not meaning like, hey, there's just a little bit of information they don't have. And if they have this information, this is going to change everything for them. No, it's saying there's some wisdom that they lack. There's some skill that they're missing. And if they understood this wisdom, if they understood this skill, it would change the fact that they are undone. It would change the fact that they are in ruin. So if you're ready, we're going to look at this subject today, and we're going to fight back against the monster that has scared the church for too long. Is that all right with you? Can we do this today? All right. Well, let me pray. We'll go to God, and then we'll get into the preaching of his word. God, thank you so much for this opportunity. God, I ask that you would use me today to speak your word and your truth. Nobody needs to hear my opinion or my ideas. God, we need your perspective. So God, speak through me. Only you can take one message and apply it to each person here. You know exactly what they're going through, exactly what they're facing. So God, use this to help them today, I ask in Jesus' name. And everybody who agrees with that can say amen. I'm curious before we get started, how many parents are in the room? How many of you have kids? Can you just raise your hand? I just want to know who I need to pray for today with all of the Halloween candy festivities. I'm sorry, we're in church. All the harvest party festivities, all the uh, hallelujahs, hallelujah nights. I grew up in a church. We didn't have Halloween. We had hallelujah night. Um, that's, I was like, hallelujah, just give me some candy. But uh, I, I want to um, <laughs> pray for all the parents. I have, uh, I, I have four children if you don't know, 15, 10, 9, and 5. I know those are weird names. That's just what we decided to go with. But um, five children, no, four children. Got to keep it straight. 15, Reese is my oldest. Reese is, is 15 years old. If you've met him, he's, like, he's kind of like the, the, the great thing about being a parent is you kind of see different parts of your personality and, and all your kids. And so, like, Reese is, he's kind of like my quiet, serious type of kid, like just put his hand, head down and you know, get things done. He's very responsible. Now, he's a teenager, so he's still a little weird. Like, that happens. You know, he's just kind of goofy. But, um, but, but Reese, that, that's who he is. Uh, my, my nine-year-old, Grant, Grant is my tender, sweet, kind kid. He's very loving. He's very affectionate, very thoughtful. Uh, Pippa is my young. She's five. She's, she's the girl of the family. She's Lots of attitude. She is 100% girl, very princessy, and, you know, she lets everybody know it. Um, Oliver, my, my 10-year-old, he's my bougie kid, my, my bougie kid. What I mean by that is he likes nice cars. 
Uh, he likes nice clothes. He, he asked if I would buy him some Gucci one time. He, uh, he wants to go on expensive vacations. Now, some of you are judging my parenting right now. I want to let you know I actually encourage this as his dad because, you know, one day my kids are going to take care of mom and dad, and I want to make sure somebody has good taste um, when that day comes. So you know, somebody's got to be looking out for me. So, so Oliver is my, my bougie kid, but, you know, in addition to that, uh, Marissa and I really try to help him understand bigger matters about money. It's not just like, you know, earning money and buying stuff. Like, like one of the things we teach him is that, Oliver, if you really want to earn money in your life, your character matters a whole lot more than your career. And so we, we teach him these things at home. Like one of the things we, we talk about is, okay, homework before video games. Like this is just the rule. Like you have to, you have to work before the reward. And if all you do is just you have no self-discipline, you just pursue pleasure, you're going to end up in a place where you don't have the opportunity to enjoy any pleasure because you don't have any money. So it's always work before reward. That's one of the things we talked to him about. Another thing we talked to him about is, is just, you know, how you treat people, kindness. Like this matters a lot. Not just, you know, not just the, the words you say to people, but how you say things to people. You know, so we talk about how he responds to, to mom and dad. It's got to be yes, sir. And Yes, ma'am, and how he speaks to his brothers and, and sister, because how you say things matters just as much as what you say. And we talk about generosity, and generosity is not just like giving to the church or giving to charity. Like generosity is really an attitude. It's an issue of your heart. And so we talk about like, are you, are you sharing things? And are you too attached to stuff? And like, if you're really attached to stuff, like it's going to keep you from, from being generous. And so we talk to him about selflessness, but Really, you could kind of sum up everything that we talk about with him in, in this phrase, this principle, like, Oliver, good behavior pays off. I mean, just remember this in life, good behavior pays off. And I think it's starting to stick because, like, at my kid's school, they go to a Christian school, and they, um, they get these things, at least he does, uh, maybe he's the only good kid, uh, for, um, for good behavior. It's called Eagle Bucks, I think. I don't really know because I don't read the emails, but... They, they get these things, and he's always coming home, like, excited to tell me. It's like, Dad, I got some Eagle Bucks today, and he's telling me, like, you know, who didn't get the Eagle Bucks and why, and, and you know, like, gets all comparison with him. And, and so he's, he's telling me about this, and, and the other day, he came home this last week. He's like, Dad, uh, I, I got three bucks. I'm like, oh, that's, that's awesome. Like, you got uh, three Eagle Bucks? He's like, no, I got three dollars. I said, how did you get three dollars? He's like, I sold my Eagle Bucks. First of all, I want to apologize if the parents of that child are in the room right now. I did not know about this. If there's any faculty or school teachers here, please don't report this. I'm pretty sure it's illegal. Um, I just want to say if, you, uh, if he ever comes at you with a, a business deal, just make sure you audit it before you invest because there are probably some unscrupulous activities happening. The, the point I'm trying to make is um, good behavior pays off. It, it pays off. And uh, what Oliver has discovered is true for me and you as well. Another way of saying it is that, you know, the way we handle money, it's more emotional than it is intellectual. It's driven more by our heart than our head. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. He says, your heart will be where your treasure is. This came from his most famous sermon, by the way, the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthews chapter 5 through 7, when you read his entire sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, what you discover, it's really all about your behavior 
and your possessions. So this could be my most famous sermon that I ever preached because we're talking about your behavior and possessions. But it's interesting to me how closely tied our possessions and our behavior are. Maybe that's why two-thirds of Jesus' parables dealt with the subject of money and possessions because if you get it right, it corrects the other. They're closely connected. And you might be wondering, okay, we get it, preacher. Why are you taking so long to talk about this? It's because we all know that the key to handling money well is to live on less than you make. That is not a mystery. Nobody is arguing that. Nobody is disagreeing with that. Nobody is disputing that. Yet, statistics show that 50% of the Americans could not cover a $400 emergency with cash. So, obviously this affects us. And if we're going to get better at this, it starts with realizing that we manage money with our character more than a calculator. We manage money with our character more than a calculator. All of us can do the math, yet the vast majority of Americans are still struggling. And it takes a perspective shift. That's what I want to help you with today. It, it means that there are some things about our desires and our cravings that are keeping us from getting ahead. That's why the first thing you need is vision. If you want to see a change in this area in your life, the first thing you need is vision. It takes vision, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, last week, I told you how we started this church. Uh, today, I want to tell you how we started our marriage. When Marissa and I got married, or 18 years ago, we got married, we started the way most everybody starts, extremely modestly. We graduated, I graduated from a, a small school in Oklahoma. Marissa, she started at a community college and then did two years at a private college, and I had put myself through school. She brought $24,000 worth of student loans into the marriage. It's a real blessing in my life. If she was a real blessing in my life, is what I meant to say. And this is how we started. You know, just graduating from, from school, you, you don't start out with the best jobs. She had a job at a small Christian school that was $19,000 a year. I was doing this job. I was not anything special. I was making $22,000 a year this is how we started. And I got to tell you, like the first six months of marriage, it was pretty great. It's pretty great for lots of reasons. But one of the reasons it's pretty great because all the student loans hadn't kicked in yet. And when the, the student loans cooked in, or kicked in, I remember getting our, our first one and it was like not that much, like $22 a month. Then there was like one that was like $56 a month. The big one, it's like $109 a month. It was, you know, inconvenient, but not anything that we couldn't manage. And so we were paying that. And that went on for really about a year and a half. So one day, I remember getting in the mail the, the amortization schedule, the schedule of payments that I was going to have to pay out on this school loan. And I saw that we were going to be paying on this until I was 55 years old. It's ridiculous. And that moment changed everything for me and Marissa. Now, I'm going to spare you all the details, I'll just give you some of the highlights, but from that moment, things begin to shift in, inside of us. So uh, Marissa had left her job at teaching at the time. We were down to just a single income. It was just, I was just working at the time. 
um, we had had our first kid, and I'd gotten a new job. But I remember that year that things shifted. We got aggressive about freeing ourselves from debt, student debt. And our, I remember on our tax return, we had made $40,000 that year. I got a new job, was commissioned, so I'd, I'd made some more money. But in 18 months, we had paid off the $24,000 of her loan. And you might think, what was it that enabled us to do that? What I'm going to tell you is we had a vision. We had a vision. Is when I saw what our life could be like if we didn't change, something changed in me. So I had a vision that things could be different. Scripture puts it this way, where there's no vision, people perish. When we don't have vision in our life, we, we wonder, why do we end up in this situation? It's because we don't have a picture that things could be different. Now, what's interesting in this passage, perish doesn't really mean like, like fail. It actually means there's no restraint. It means there's no borders or no boundaries. It means that we say yes to things that we shouldn't say yes to. A different translation puts it this way, where there's no vision, people get out of control. This is why you need a vision. No vision, no control. Another way of phrasing it is that how did we get out? Well, it started with the vision. How did we do it with a budget? We did it with a budget. And a vision, or I'll put it this way, a budget is a vision for your money. A budget is a vision for your money. In other words, no vision, no control. No budget, no boundaries. No plan, no parameters. No insight into this, no increase in your life. You do it with a budget. Now, I get that this is not sexy preaching, but it is practical preaching. This is why I always try and encourage people to get a vision for your life, because this doesn't just work for your money, it works for your life. When, when I was 17 years old, I knew that God had called me into the ministry. Now, I had no idea that in 2021 I would be here standing in front of you and leading this church and preaching. But I did know that whatever I was going to do, I was going to serve God with my life in some capacity. Leverage my life for the sake of the gospel. Now, I didn't know what that would look like, but I did know that because it was going to be one thing, it meant that probably was not going to be an accountant. So I didn't go to school for that. It meant that because I was going to use my life for one thing, it meant that I was probably not going to get into modeling. It's a big dis- You didn't have to laugh at that. All right, that was hurtful. <laughs> so I'm like, you could have figured that out a long time ago. You didn't need a vision. But a vision determines what you will do and what you won't do. It'll save you years and it'll save you resource. And in the same way, when you lay out a budget for your money, you say, what's your money's going towards? This is how we did it. We listed out every dollar, every dollar came in, and we had a plan for how we we're going to use it. By having a plan, it eliminated what we wouldn't spend it on. So you think about it this way. You might think, well, well, why is this such a big deal? Because most of us don't budget. This is what we did with Vision Sunday, by the way. Vision Sunday, I talked last week about our offering that we're going to do at the, at the end of the year, and and we said, hey, this is what we want to do. This is why we want to do it. 
this is where the money's going. It's a vision. It predetermines. It eliminates the options. That will, that's what vision will do. But most of us lack a financial vision for our life. We don't have financial vision because we're living the American dream. I think, well, what is the American dream? The American dream is the pursuit of happiness. I'm not down on having stuff. I'm absolutely not. But understand, just that phrase, the pursuit of happiness, implies that you're pursuing something that you will never possess. And so we end up trying to get more and more stuff to create a sense of fulfillment in us. And this is why we can live in a day where our anxiety increases at the same rate as our income. Where we've got more wealth, but we've got more worry. Here's why. You've got to break this cycle. It's got to start with the vision. Out of vision, we'll have some restraint because now we've got some boundaries, some parameters. And with restraint, we can begin to save. And here's why saving matters. Because you can't plan for what you can't envision. So a budget is a vision for your money, but you can't plan for what you can't envision. And this takes diligence. This is why you have to save. See, a budget only handles the things that you can see. Saving is for the things you can't see. And this is the real difference between building wealth in your life and living paycheck to paycheck. Simply put, this is the first and only step if you want to change your life. It's to begin saving. To begin saving. Because the reality is, you can build wealth without a high income, but you can't build wealth without saving. It's impossible. When most of us say that we want to be a millionaire one day, what we really mean is that we would like to spend a million dollars. That is actually the opposite of being a millionaire. The only way to be a millionaire is to save it. And I want to explain to you why people don't save, because most people only see the value of the dollar, not the discipline. The, the way most people save is out of surplus, not out of a system. So when we have an extra 50, an extra 100, an extra 200, maybe with your budget, when you have an extra 1,000, an extra 2,000, maybe with some of you, when you got an extra 10K, then you'll put it away. But can I tell you what really changed my life with saving money? I'll read you this verse. <laughs> Most people don't save because the amount they could save seems insignificant. Proverbs 21 verse 5 says this, steady plotting brings prosperity. That's not very exciting. Who wants to be a plotter? Yeah, just, you know, little by little, just really not making any waves, just a little bit at a time. But can I tell you this is what changed it for me? I can tell you the moment Marissa and I got serious about saving. It was when we started saving $5 a week. So we're like, seriously? That's when you got... Five dollars, that doesn't seem very much. No, that's when we got serious. I was, I told you we were paying off debt, paying off student loans. A lot of the, this is how we did it. We started with a budget. We had saved up $1,000, created an emergency fund. But then I was tired of just everything going out, paycheck to paycheck. And when we got serious is when I had this conviction that I didn't want to consume 
everything God was giving me. And so I went in, changed my direct deposit that week, and started putting five, I was getting paid a week, a weekly at the time, started putting $5 a week into an account that we would never touch. See, if that seems foolish to you or seems silly or seems so insignificant, it was never about the amount for me. It was always about the habit that I would set aside a portion of our income for something that we couldn't envision, for what I didn't even know, not because I was saving up for something, not even for uh, emergency. No, just I wanted to get in the discipline that I am not going to be a consumer of everything God puts into my hands. And I'm sure it seemed funny to the payroll person. Like, I, I got to believe whoever was doing this, they get this request to come in for $5 of my paycheck to go into a separate account. Seems so small. But I've learned to recognize that having financial strength in your life is often just the difference between your ego and your income. That's why the best way to change our financial future isn't with more money, but with more humility. Really, it takes contentment. It takes contentment. See, I've been in this mode personally with our staff now, uh, both personally for myself and, and with our staff, to eliminate need. And when I say eliminate need, I don't mean that I'm looking to fill every lack that exists. What I mean is I want to stop saying the word. Because need gives a phrase too much power and not enough honesty. Maybe it's an opportunity. Maybe it's a desire. Maybe it's a good idea. Maybe it's even a wish. Any of those things are okay. But I found that most of the things that we say are needs are really not needs. And if you really want to change your financial future, it's not about increasing the money that you earn. But it's by decreasing what you need. And this is the hardest financial skill you will ever master, is to keep the goalposts from moving. If every time you increase, your expectation increases, what you need increases, you are always going to live unfulfilled. Part of fulfillment is actually having enough. And this is something that we all have to learn regardless of whatever age you are. Uh, my oldest son, Reese, he's been saving for a while, not saving like I'm talking about. He's been saving for a purpose. He's been wanting to build a new gaming computer or buy a new gaming computer. And he's been doing this for, I don't know, probably nine months. And, uh, I mean, it should be pretty easy because he doesn't have a lot of expenses. But he's been saving up for a while now. And just a couple weeks ago, things have really come to a head because the computer that he has... It's a 2008. It's remember, like, how can that computer work? It's a 2008. It's a Mac. Okay, so it works. It's 2008. And it's, it stopped working. It stopped working. It's like, I don't know what's wrong with it. It's overheating something. So he's been saving up for a while, and he's close. He's close to his goal. And he's kind of discouraged. He was looking, and he's showing me what he wanted to get. And he's like, well, he's like, I guess, I guess I could just, you know, get this and make the rest that I don't have, just make the payments on it. And I said, I said, Reese, man, bud, like I know that'd be the easier thing to do, but 
we don't do that in this family. We don't do that. So I know it'd be easy to do that and you could get it and you could probably, you know, by the time you get the computer, like you probably get a few more jobs and, you know, you could earn that money and that, that would not be too hard. But I said, if you start doing this now, you're always going to tell yourself that when you want something, it's okay to take it. And you got to build patience in your life, delayed gratification. I said, why don't you use that desire to get this thing now to go hustle and find some more jobs? And I said, I don't know, you know, talk to Oliver. Maybe he can get you there faster. <laughs> Have some ideas, but... What I'm trying to say, look, if you've been around me at all, I want you to know, like, I'm not against setting big goals. Set some big goals. Get some big vision for your life of what God can do and wants to do. Big goals aren't bad. Believing God for more is not bad. I'm not against stuff. Stuff isn't evil. Stuff is just stuff. It's just stuff. But at the same token, I want to encourage you that being content and having enough is not too little. I was reminded as I was preparing this message how one of the names of God is El Shaddai. In fact, it's one of the first names we see of God is in Genesis 17 where God introduces himself to Abram, later changes his name to Abraham, makes a covenant with him. Abraham is called the father of faith. Introduces himself and he says, I am El Shaddai. El Shaddai, most times it's translated all sufficient. Literally though, it just means the sufficient one, the one who is enough. I was thinking about that because like sometimes translators, you look at what it means and they, they get a little excited about it. So they'll say like it's the all sufficient or the abundantly enough. But even that name is kind of funny to me. Abundantly enough, that, that's like saying you are incredibly adequate. Doesn't sound like that exciting. But this is how God refers himself. Incredibly adequate, abundantly enough. And I wonder if it's maybe the fact that God can't do more in your life until he's enough in your life. There's an interesting picture of this in 2 Chronicles. In 2 Chronicles, there's this young man named Uzziah. Uzziah becomes king of Israel when he's 16 years old. Becomes king because his dad, Amaziah, has died. And when he becomes king, the nation of Israel is in a bad state. Whatever you think is going on in America right now is worse because you talk about there being a political divide. The nation was actually divided. Two nation states, and even within the states, there was a lot of turmoil. Part of the reason the nation was in such a mess was because his dad, Amaziah, had made some bad commitments. He had committed himself to some things financially and in other ways that caused them to be in this mess. And so Uzziah, he's wondering what to do. And it tells us in Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 26 or 5 says, he continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. In other words, Picture yourself in Uzziah's shoes. 
This is a mess. I don't know how to get out of this. I don't know where to start. I don't know what to do. I'm not smart enough to solve it. I didn't cause it, but I don't know how to fix it. But God, I believe that you're enough. Because I believe you're enough and you're sufficient, I'm going to seek you. Not only as he sought God was God able to bless him, but God used him to change the state of the nation, to change what everybody else was experiencing. The reason I bring that up, because that's my prayer for us, that we'd be a church that seeks God. That regardless of what's going on in the country, regardless of what's going on in the economy, regardless of what's going on in your industry, that as we seek God because he's enough, that we'll have the sufficiency to meet the needs of the world. And I tell you, God's word is not subject to anything, but it is the authority on everything that it speaks to. And it speaks to this subject of how we handle our money and possessions. And I want to help you do it well. It takes vision. It takes restraint. It takes diligence. And it takes contentment.